From the Faculty of Graduate Studies at York University, this is Grad Life. I'm Will Sloan. The path to recovery from an opioid addiction is long and multifaceted. Even if you're able to make it through the detox, you will now be deprived of the drug that has likely consumed a huge part of your identity, and you'll have to build a new identity from the ground up. A Toronto fentanyl user named Peter, also known as Rabbit, found a glimmer of a new identity when a video he created about his life went viral. The minor celebrity he experienced inspired him to seek recovery. His story is the subject of Saving Rabbit, a new documentary from CBC Docs POV. The documentary is directed by Manfred Becker, an award-winning documentary filmmaker who has made a habit of tackling difficult subject matter, from terrorism to the global diamond industry to mental illness in the arts. He is also the graduate program director of York's film program. What sort of relationship did this middle-class filmmaker build with his homeless protagonist, and how did he navigate the obvious ethical questions? I met Manfred in his office. The documentary centers on a, a Toronto man named Peter, also known as Rabbit. How did you come to know him? In 2017, a company went to the CBC and said, we want to give cell phones to homeless youth in Toronto and have them record their lives and see what happens. And it was eventually published and there were about five, six videos out there and the one which had the most impact was a young man named Rabbit. He was 24, he had been homeless at that point for about 10 years and he is someone with addiction issues. So there's somebody who is using fentanyl and basically playing Russian roulette because it could end his life at any given time. And uh, what stood out for Rabbit was that his video went onto Facebook, and Facebook being Facebook, it went viral and it had a million hits. And a million hits meant that people cared because they wanted to know what it was like for him. So people would stop him on, on the road and say, hey Peter, how are you doing and how, how things are going? So suddenly he felt this renewed sense of purpose and he decided, okay, if people actually care about me rather than just looking right through me or ignoring me on the street when I panhandle, maybe that means something. So he decided to do something which is very, very difficult to do, which is to get off an opioid. And so the CBC said, okay, let's document that. And they went back to the company and said, let's do, rather than a five minute web piece, let's do a one hour documentary for the television screen. So I got to meet Rabbit and we started the first six months just hanging out and speaking, uh, introducing each other's partners, having meals together and building what is essential in, in making documentaries is to be gaining trust with each other. It takes a lot of patience, I'm sure. Yeah. When you're trying to build trust, I hate to put it in terms of like strategy, but how, how do you gain that trust? I think the, the term strategy isn't that far off mm -hmm. because let's face it, I'm in the business of feeding off the misery of others. As a documentarian, that's what I do. I've been doing these for 35 years. I've been making films as a director or editor or as a writer or sometimes producer, usually about people living on the edge whose stakes are very high. So here I was with this young man and our experience couldn't be more far apart because he was living a life 
that could end any day, while I at night would return to my middle class existence where very little has actually any consequences. Mm -hmm. So we tried our best to ignore that difference. That's interesting. Instead of acknowledging it or making a joke about it or... Uh... Well, yeah. if you acknowledge it, what does it actually mean? Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about we live in a material world. Mm -hmm. I was the director and was getting paid. My cameraman was getting paid. Our editor was getting paid. The producers were getting paid. The CBC commissioning editor was getting paid. The whole series of professionals working on this. But the person who gives the most, who opens their lives and their soul and project themselves onto the world, into this world, was getting zip. Mm -hmm. And in the past, I've tried to battle that. And I said, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. like, we, we should find compensation. Now, institutions like the National Film Board of Canada or the CBC have policies, and that makes sense. They say we don't pay subjects because it will color their participation. Mm -hmm. Although you could argue that the fact that there's a camera right mm -hmm. now, let's say, mm -hmm recording us would change our behavior as well. And does you getting paid color your own participation? That's right. Yeah. So everything is subjective and I don't think you have to be a postmodernist to acknowledge that. So, mm -hmm. so what do you do about that? Because it's not a fair exchange. And if documentary is about entering the world of others, which for the audience are unknown spheres, unknown universes, and what do we know about what it's like for a fentanyl addict to stick this needle into his neck or into his arm on a daily basis, knowing that he might not live another day, meant he had to do a lot of explaining and a lot of reaching out and a lot of introductions, which are dangerous for him because he's living in an illegal world, which means that his dealer might go after me if there's any sense that he might be recognized, etc., etc. So we found a compromise in this case where the production company paid for some of his food, his metro pass, his cell phone, etc., etc. Yet it is a compromise because, let's face it, in our world we, we exist because we buy and we sell and we have a market value. And here he was being the protagonist of a one-hour documentary, which is about telling a story, yet there was very little that, that came towards him from us mm -hmm. so we overcame that and and then we went to work I said so what's it like and he said I have a question first and I said what's that and he he asked me what drugs have you been using for over your years you're not the youngest and I said well maybe the occasional acid trip and a bit of weed here and there and he said how the hell are you going to understand what my life is like because you have no clue what it's like to stick that needle into your arm. And to do that, just to understand what it's like for him, would be naive and dangerous and not permissible. So that's one of these areas where we said we have to basically ignore the differences between his experience and, 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 and my experience and pretend we are in this, in this union together now for a limited time and ignore the, 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 the differences in order to find common ground. So again, if documentary is about taking an audience into a world they don't know, yet there was no way for me to comprehend what it's like. So I said, what's it like to put fentanyl in your body? And he said, remember the time when your mom would take you out of your bath and she would wrap you in a, in a cotton blanket and warm you? That feeling of absolute happiness? And I thought, wow. 
the, the, the wholesome image of a mother embracing her child with a warm blanket of love to be compared to sticking this, this needle into your arm is, is a remarkable metaphor. And then I said, so, okay, but that blanket is slowly killing you. Because, as his own father said, with fentanyl, chances are you either go off it, which is seldom, or you die. Canada has had 10,000 people who died of, of opioid addiction in the last three years, which, given the probability of statistics, will mean 10,000 Canadians will die in the next three years. So, I said, what prevents you from trying it. He said, look, man, I've tried many times, but let me tell you what it's like to be on withdrawal. It's like that you're, you're, you're burning from the inside. Your bones are on fire. You can't eat because you throw up. You can't uh, drink because you can't keep liquid down. You can't sleep. You are in an altered state. And I understood at that point that, yes, we say people to people who have addiction issues like why don't you just try detox and go through the rehab process it's not that easy because you become a different person and your body is so attuned to using the drug on a daily basis that getting off it means reinventing yourself mm. in terms of identity yes that's the other thing mm -hmm. is imagine I would now tell you that whatever you've done for the last 10 years you got to stop you got to stop working at a university, working in the in the in the uh, public relations or communications department. Change your partner, change whatever you do, what you love to do, and reinvent yourself. If somebody would tell me that, I wouldn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I would have a complete vacuous um, existence because I would have to fill it all with meaning. But that's exactly what it's like to be someone with addiction issues because Rabbit's life is about getting up in the morning or in the afternoon, getting out there to hustle to get the money, whether you do squeegeeing or you beg or you get a job. And then you go to the, your dealer and you hope he can, he can supply you and, and whatever he sells you is okay. And there's a relationship which is based on trust because a dealer with the wrong mixture can kill. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea is that Fentanyl is a hundred times more potent than heroin and carfentanyl, which is used to tranquilize elephants, is a hundred times more potent than fentanyl. So you do the math. Yeah. So he does that on a daily basis. So he gets his stuff, he cooks it, he injects it, and then he's high. And it returns him to a state of equilibrium. For us, the understanding of being on drugs, or for many of us, is that you are in an altered state which gives you a height of experience. That might have been the start of it, that you dabble in, in, in party drugs and you get high and then you have a hangover maybe and then you return to your normal day existence. But people who use opioids are not doing it out of choice. We've Finally, even though it's not complete, we finally come around to see this not as a criminal issue, but as a social and a medical issue. So what he's doing is he's, he's self-medicating in order to cope up with life, to look life in the eye and be able to live through another day. Because whatever took him to take the drugs in the first place often was not just having some fun, but covering 
trauma which could go back into childhood, it could be experienced when he was a teenager, it could be conflicts which are deep and they're very hurtful and they're very complex to solve. So by, by taking fentanyl, it's like a self-medication. And that was the state he's in. So if you self-medicate in order to keep a certain sense of sanity in this insane world, why would you get off it? And then being faced mm -hmm. to reinvent yourself. So the complexity of a character is, was just fascinating for me to realize, yet also frustrating because it's television. It's 42 minutes and 37 seconds. It's interrupted in, in uh, four commercial breaks. You have your four or five acts. You have to have a beginning, middle, and end. You have to tell a story. The CBC told us beforehand, don't bore us and don't make it depressing. Hmm. Well, life of, a, of, a, of a, someone with fentanyl addiction is pretty boring because they go the same circle every day. And what he had projected in the beginning to say, I will change my life, I will get off the needle, like few people have done before, was the premise. But life doesn't unfold as a kind of story with beginning, middle and end and four acts. It's messy, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a dance with contradictions. We spend all our time dealing with the contradiction between our idea, what actually what life makes of it and overcoming that shadow between idea and reality, that famous T.S. Eliot poem. So that doesn't fit into the neat dramatic structure and arc of a story. So how do you intervene? So it got more and more complex in telling that story. Here we go here, I'm talking about story, um, when life isn't really a story. And he was not doing what the premise was, 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 which was to get off the, um, the needle and change his life and us accompanying him and witnessing what it's like. Did you and your crew ever have any sort of ethical qualms with uh, being there and, and documenting that sort of while it wasn't working out? Yeah, of course, mm -hmm. because A, on a very pragmatic um, level, Rabbit has lost more than 30 friends, he says, that could very likely be true because he lives in the harm reduction community and most of his social circles are users. Mm -hmm. And 10,000 Canadian Canadians have died in the last three years, so mm -hmm. chances are that he's lost a number of, of his own peers. And sometimes, not sometimes, it comes down to fentanyl, if you break it down, is like a, a grain of salt. And that grain of salt, if you cook it, and if the mixture isn't quite right, um, it might l cross the line between a really good high to an overdose. And I was spending time with him, and there was a lot of time with him on my own. I had to have training and a naloxone kit with me, which you either inject or inject it nasally through a spray, in order to bring him back because naloxone is an antidote to fentanyl and it puts itself onto the opioid receptors in the in the brain in order to bring somebody back who basically has been dead and because they stopped breathing. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the reality for a rabbit a number of times. Mm -hmm. He told me I was dead a number of times and people brought me back. That's why he believes 
in the harm reduction model, which includes supervised injection sites, mm -hmm. which allows for the idea, and it got started in Vancouver about 20 years ago, that users will use because they have to. It's not a question of choice. So if we accept that this is a medical condition, how do we apply a medical framework and help? Which means you provide a site where people can use the needle, use the, the, the opioids under supervision of nurses and peers. So if somebody overdoses, they can be brought back to life and then put or rushed into a hospital. Hmm. Now, there's something also inherently obscene about that because here we go, we watch somebody break the law, prostitute themselves in order to score, get the money so they can get their street drugs. And then we watch them overdose to bring them back to life so they can repeat the same circle the next day. Mm. And that is unfortunately the state of, of um, most of the developed world right now. And in the US they aren't even that far, even though they declared it an emergency because 40,000 people have died there. Mm. We haven't really learned to put action to the words. We might have that commitment to say, okay, it's a medical problem, but medical problems require long-term solutions. When somebody has cancer, that means there are extensive tests, there's um, a variety of, of treatments, chemo, um, radiation, operation, surgery, and we have long-term care. That might be possible for people who have addiction issues if you have money. But as a doctor who's very, very angry, who I spoke to in, in um, Ottawa said, rich people get treatment and poor people get supervised injection sites. Mm. And that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So again, we were in this absolutely complex environment where there are no easy solutions. And you, you people like the idea of harm reduction. A lot of the government endorses it. and, and Right now, it's a necessity in order to save lives. To save lives, because um, if you have overdose near death, you cannot make a choice about ever choosing a path of sobriety. Mm -hmm. So, if it comes to to keeping people alive, harm reduction is the way to go. But it is not a long term solution. So, what's a long term solution is sobriety and and getting off the fentanyl, which means reinventing yourself, digging deep embracing the talking cure to be able to come out of that shell in order to, to deal with the trauma you might have suffered. But that's long-term. People are in therapy for, for their lives. There are 12-step programs out there for all kinds of addictions. And as people who've been through it say, I'm in recovery, they never say I'm recovered because they know once you have had that basically devil sitting on your, on your shoulder, it will always be with you. Mm -hmm. And then the next step, of course, is to look at why is there addiction anyhow in the first place? I mean, there are certain people addicted to fentanyl, other people are addicted and way more to alcohol, people are addicted to shopping, to power, to money, to sex, to control. We are addicted personalities. And a well-quoted, very, very smart and very experienced psychologist, Gabor Mate, has written books about that about those, those black dogs nipping at you. Mm -hmm. And I think what it does require is to look at that person on the street by the subway and say, this isn't really about them. It's not 
them who is obscene or unacceptable. It's the situation they're living in, and the situation is us. So there we go. That's now five minutes of description where you have 42 minutes of telling a story which is supposed to have a beginning, middle, and an end. Mm. And uh, things developed in the documentary which were unexpected, and it has a bit of a surprise ending, but it's the dilemma of the documentarian trying to take what's, what's, what's multifaceted and complex and reducing it to these four acts. You mentioned that the drug is a form of self-medication. It sounds almost as if your presence there and the presence of your crew, because they give him somebody to talk to, um, and a, a sort of a, it almost sounds like talk therapy. And maybe that's a wrong assumption, but I'm curious how talking to you, did that have any therapeutic or medicative effect on him? And how did that interact with the drug or what he was seeking from the drug? Yes, um, even that, again, is multifaceted because to give somebody attention, and I think Robert or Peter decided to, to um, accept me because I was listening and I, I was trying not to judge, although I can't deny my own bias. I have two uh, young men as children who are not dabbling into this kind of stuff and I'm, I'm very, very glad about that and I, he could be my son so I, I had kind of fatherly notions about wanting to save him and that's the last thing they need is somebody wanting to save them. They have to do things by themselves. Listening was important, not judging, being curious and not trying to convince somebody of something I certainly didn't understand, but also recognizing that for somebody like Rabbit, the idea of truth and honesty is something different. He cannot afford to be living by these principles every day, because for him, every day is survival. Mm -hmm. In the last year, I've seen him uh, in hospitals, crisis centers, detox facilities, his life is one perpetual move from crisis to crisis to crisis. So in order to validate what he does, he needs to have a story, a narrative, there we go, a story, to describe what happened in the past. And he would tell me stories about what took place when he was a younger man. And I said, look, man, it's, this is the CBC. I can't just put that on air. I need to validate this. I have to apply basic rules of, of fact-checking. And he said, well, go ahead. And when I did that, those stories didn't pan out. I'm not, I can't assume they're wrong, mm -hmm. but I just couldn't validate. And I said, look, I, we can't play the story. Mm -hmm. He said, well, then don't play it. So for him, creating these narratives made sense in order to validate his existence and create some kind of coherence in his life. I am who I am because of my past. And that would translate into the into the here and now. I got many, many phone calls where he said, look, I'm hungry. And I said, well, I take you to the food bank or I can take you to the grocery store. And he would say, no, no, no I need cash. And mm. I couldn't give him cash because I knew, just like the CBC or the National Film Board would say, you can't have taxpayers' money go to a dealer's pocket that somebody can shoot up or possibly die from it mm. that's just not acceptable from their point of view from his point of view his his world is so direct and so limited that of course he makes stuff up in order to get through the day because so much in reality is against him being marginalized being poor being ignored or looked upon with disdain 
he has to create his own world in order to find existence. So trust is one thing, but it also needed to be checked constantly because I was just another extension of his means to get through the day. Mm -hmm. And at that point, loyalty or declared sympathies don't mean much. I'm sure that's tricky for you to navigate. No, I think it's acceptable. Um, we, we engage. I mm -hmm. think that's something I learned because I've been making a yeah. number of films with people who have health issues, who are, who are poor. I've dealt with pe people who are murderers. I've dealt with people who were taking part in a genocide. We all try to make sense of our existence and explain the, our past and certainly make arrangements. So the idea of an absolute mm -hmm. truth doesn't exist. So you enter their lives for a certain period mm -hmm. of time. And why should there be principles you would apply to your friends who are with you for your life or your family. So mm. I accept that. I'm not naive to think, oh, you didn't tell me the truth. For them, it is the truth because for Robert, he needed to create those narratives. Have you kept in touch with him since finishing the documentary and will you? That is the remarkable and also sad ending. The ending of the film, as it is on screen, is that we took him to Ottawa to a detox center where a bed was waiting for him, and he he freaked out. He had an anxiety attack and basically walked out after an hour, and we took him right back to Toronto, which, of course, was devastating. It's not what the CBC wanted, what we didn't want, and certainly his family didn't want. And first of all, he didn't want is to fail. Mm -hmm. But uh, then, as we were doing the post-production and, and the final touches on the editing and the, the music composition, etc., uh, I got a phone call saying, I'm going to detox on Monday, and it's going to be one week, and then I'm going right into a treatment center, which is near his parents. And that was about a month ago, and he's still there. Great. That's the, the wonderful part of it. The... So that might actually be one of those occasions where there is a potential for, let's call it happy ending and all its cliche, because mm -hmm. there's an opening that it's not a path down into, into a lifelong addiction, but a path into the possibility of change. But he also was not happy with what I, I've said about um, our relationship. And the last time I heard from him, he texted me saying, I never want to see you again. And I hope he will reconsider because I, I value him and I, I trust him and I respect him. But I need to respect if he says that he feels betrayed, which I did not try to do. And I don't think the film or the statements I made about the film do that. Mm -hmm. I was trying to protect him, but that's his right. Has he been able to see the film? Yes, it was on on the CBC last Thursday, mm. uh, and it will be online for a while to come. So you can, like most people nowadays who watch television, they all go onto mm -hmm. onto the web. So. For more information on the Faculty of Graduate Studies, go to gradstudies.yorku.ca. Thanks for listening.